0: Hello, hello, and welcome back uh, from your long holiday weekends. We did not actually have a long holiday weekend. I should tell you that we did a live show on Friday, uh, a live episode of the Nose. Which, you, if you didn't hear it, uh, some pretty interesting discussions of the second season of Big Little Lies and Little Nas X coming out, and having the first uh, live-action Little Mermaid uh, being a black uh, protagonist, a black Ariel. So. Uh, look it up. WNPR.org slash Colin. Uh, all the shows are there. We've got a very uh, interesting episode for you today. Second segment, we're going to talk about what the lasting implications, the lasting effects uh, of President Trump's foreign policy might be. Foreign policy tends to outlive the occupant of the White House, who crafts it, uh, if craft is is even a word we would use. Uh, so, So what happens? What kind of... Um, picture will uh, his successor inherit, things that will be difficult to reverse. And then, uh, of course, we have to do have to talk about the Women's World Cup. Uh, Josh Levine from Slate, a regular uh, visitor to our show, is going to be with us to talk about that. And, I mean, as of th- this morning, Megan Rapino is the biggest soccer star in the history of the United States. Uh, of either gender, as far as I can tell. Anyway, a lot of things to say about that. But earthquakes are going on uh, out uh, in California. Uh, These are uh, the biggest uh, earthquakes since 1994. They shook communities about 120 miles northeast of Los Angeles last week. Uh, First one, 6.4 on the Richter scale, followed by a 7.1. And here's a little bit of the sound uh, of people feeling those first tremors. Uh, So joining us now is someone who's no, uh, that that was, by the way, was recorded by Dan Gallo on uh, Twitter, Uh, someone who's no stranger to those kinds of sounds. Uh, In fact, his podcast uh, contains uh, those kinds of sounds. Uh, Jacob Margolis, science reporter for KPCC in uh, Southern California and the host of the podcast, The Big One. Uh, Jacob Margolis, welcome to our conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: So, um, you know, one of the things that you try to do in your podcast and and in your work is it, it is try to get people acquainted with what it would really be like uh, if um, if we had a Kobe, you know, if we had uh, a situation where, where a large earthquake hit a heavily populated area, uh, you know, in, in, at very close range, and It seems as though even people who are familiar with the reality of earthquakes have a hard time picturing that. Maybe you could say a little bit more about what you've tried to communicate to people.
1: Yeah, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. My wife grew up in Los Angeles. We both lived through the Northridge earthquake, which was a big event back in 1994. And when we started this whole production for this podcast, like we didn't have anything ready. And that is true for a lot of Angelinos and a lot of people that live in Southern California that like, you go, you always go like, ah, okay. Like maybe, you know, I'm going to go buy some earthquake supplies. Oh, that's something I really need to do. And what we wanted to do with the podcast was like, was actually spur people to action. It was very much a like, okay, we're going to put this together. We're going to show you how bad it can be because it, it, it will be very bad. And we're going to show you that, well, you might not be able to like, stop the earth from shaking and buildings from falling down and fires from breaking out and people from dying, you can probably help yourself and your neighbors in many, many other ways, Uh, at least when it comes to supplies like water and food, all of which will be in trouble uh, after a major quake here.
0: So, um, you know, I sometimes, I was thinking about this today, listening to your podcast, and I was noticing also, so Dr. Lucy Jones, who, if there could be such a thing as a celebrity seismologist, uh, is probably uh, that right now, Uh, but... Yeah, uh, but you know, Los Angeles has a lot of celebrities. And, and in a way, I was looking at Lucy Jones's Twitter account today. I'm of course a follower now, and she's got 125,000 followers, which is a lot of followers. But for somebody who has a lot of critical uh, information that could be Probably will be at some point a life or death matter for tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. You know, 125,000 followers isn't that much. It's kind of like she doesn't really have the attention of the people who really you know, could live or die based on what they know about the phenomenon of an earthquake.
1: I will say, as much as I would like it to be a reflection of, like, real life, I don't think Twitter really is. And the thing about Lucy, and I I wish it was for myself, because, you know, I I feel good about my tweet presence sometimes. But for Lucy, the most important thing that she does is that she immediately gets on the horn. She is on television. She is being interviewed by every single TV station and radio station. And then after all that, she, like, popped on with us on Saturday after the 7.1 on Friday night. And, you know, we had a 20-minute conversation about it. And what she does really well is she, she de-scientifies it enough that normal people can understand what's going on. And I am very much a normal person, too. I didn't understand any of this stuff before the podcast necessarily, just a little bit here and there from growing up in the area. But what she does is she also she takes some of these really big ideas, you know, because people have follow-up questions after an event. Like, okay, so does this mean, was this a big one? OK, if it wasn't, does this mean a bigger one is coming? Um, and she goes ahead and she's very honest about it. And she does a very good job explaining it all. And the fact that everyone goes to her is very apparent because she is absolutely everywhere, at least here in L.A., no. um, after, after a major event. She, so, she's great. So, I,
0: so, Jacob, what would be an example of something that she demystified for you or something that, something that you just hadn't really thought through very well that now you understand?
1: I didn't before we did the podcast, even though I've been a science reporter for some time, even though I grew up in L.A. with earthquakes, I didn't understand just how bad this thing could be. Mm-hmm. This thing being a 7.8 magnitude Southern San Andreas earthquake. And when I say this bad, of course, I mean like a uh, couple under a couple thousand fatalities projected, uh, entire neighborhoods burning down, people unable to get medical care. Um I was surprised when I read her peer reviewed research and then interviewed her just how bad all of that. Could. So it really, for me, it was like I, I understood it in the abstract. But when we sat down and actually talked to her and read her research, I was like, oh, like, why is this not the biggest story that we're covering all the time? And the reason is because we've been talking about it for, you know, 30 plus years since the 1980s. Um, that's when we figured that's when we kind of like nailed down the paleo seismology of it all. Uh Yeah, and she just, she's able to really bring it, bring it home for me, at least. I don't, yeah, I don't know. That was just, it's very basic, but it was mind-blowing to me how
0: bad it can get. Right. I think another thing about an earthquake that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, when we think of a disaster, I don't know, maybe we think about, let's say, Katrina. Well, Katrina happens over a period of days. It kind of almost unfolds in slow motion. You can start to see the buildup of water, and then the levees break, and then blah, 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 and then there's relief uh, issues. And, and an earthquake happens in what, about two minutes?
1: Yeah, I mean, it happens. Uh, uh, so the other night, my wife and I, we were, I was exhausted, you know, we'd done all this coverage and stuff, we're laying, laying on the bed, just kind of uh, getting ready for bed, and all of a sudden, like, out of nowhere, our things start to slowly sway in our house, and slowly but surely, it gets stronger and stronger, and you can hear a pots clanging, you can hear, like, our wind chimes clanging, my baby starts crying, and it's like, we had no idea that aftershock that big which became the main shock was coming Mm -hmm. and that's the thing about earthquakes is that you know people freak out every time there is an earthquake and say oh my gosh does this mean the big one is coming when the truth of the matter is like the big one is always coming Mm -hmm. the earth is constantly moving stress is constantly being built up and people don't seem to realize that and i think it is a difficult place to live in in your head Uh, And people don't necessarily live. I don't know if it's healthy to always live with, like, you know, being a high alert, high adrenaline, like this thing is coming. But having knowledge that it is allows you to go ahead and prepare in such a way that you will be okay, probably, when something is.
0: Although, you know, that probably is an important thing, too. And that two minute thing is important because at the end yeah. of those two minutes, it's not the end of three days of rain. At the end of those two minutes, you, yeah. you, one could, as you illustrate very well in your podcast, walk out into a scene where roads aren't functioning, Internet's not functioning, trains aren't running, stores are, are closing. Uh, I mean, com- basic kinds of communication are not available. At the end of two minutes, you could have that kind of damage.
1: Yeah. And also after that, like you could have, let's say you have a 7.8 magnitude earthquake, you could be looking at 7 plus magnitude aftershocks. Mm -hmm. And so while maybe your building didn't collapse in the first one, maybe there's enough damage that another one's going to come along and take it down. Right. And there's going to be people trapped in buildings that are going to be, that are going to probably lose their lives as a result of aftershocks as well.
0: Right. And we should say, one thing that I didn't understand until getting ready for this episode and listening to your podcast and reading some stuff is, you know, an aftershock is an earthquake. (laughs) I mean, aftershock sounds like this little vibration that goes on a little bit later. No, an aftershock is another earthquake.
1: Earthquakes beget more earthquakes, especially when they're very big. And that's something that Lucy Jones will tell you. And so what ends up happening is that you get this giant release of energy, and then you're going to slow, you're going to get this tapering off of like uh, of various kind of levels of aftershock. So what we saw in Ridgecrest, for example, was there was less than a one percent chance USGS put out all these probabilities. there was a less than a one percent chance that we would have had something over a seven uh, after the six point four on Thursday, and that happened yeah. You know, And there's all these probabilities, and they go down over time, but there's probabilities of like, okay, we'll have something over a six, we'll have something over a five, we'll surely have something over a four. And a four is enough to shake things up. Five is enough to do some damage. Six is enough to really do some damage. And seven, you're looking at possibly some real big problems. Um, Um, So yeah, aftershocks are very much earthquake.
0: Let's listen to you and reporter uh, Arwen Nix uh, talking about how hard it is for people to uh, prepare and to prepare psychologically.
2: When is this earthquake going to happen?
0: I mean, you know, I can't like give, give me like
2: you. a if you can't give me like today, then give me like a year or a range.
1: Okay, so we're not ever technically overdue, but it's been 160 years since blah, we're
2: blah blah blah. Tell me when the earthquake is going to happen. See, this is what people are thinking in their heads right now, Jacob. Like, if we can't give them a specific certain date. It is really hard to prepare. Like, what are you grabbing onto? That is so much uncertainty to just ask people to prepare for something, not tell them when the something is coming. It's part of this really big problem we have with trying to get people to do something about this.
0: Which, you know, it's a great point. I mean, things can happen within a window ranging from 40 to 400 years. And when you say something like that, it it is harder to get people to treat it as an immediate problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I procrastinated on it, and I didn't really – you'll hear later in that series, or I, and it might be the episode prior, like we didn't even get ready until I had a deadline that, you know, my, where my job was on the line. I had to complete this podcast. Like, I, it's really hard to motivate people to do something that isn't, like, going to happen tomorrow for sure, That where they don't have the pressure of that deadline. The thing that you can do is appeal to their, like – you could feel to, like, the reward center of their brain. Like, you tell them, if you go out and buy an extra 50 gallons of water, that means your family won't die of thirst mm-hmm. after this major earthquake. You can either frame it in a dark way like that, or there are some ways that you could frame it to make people feel empowered. I tend to veer towards the dark stuff uh, because that's kind of what gets me ready. Um, but, yeah, it's a very big problem, and it's a big problem. And, I mean, there are entire... There's a, there are entire classes of buildings in Los Angeles. This is kind of like one of the most glaring examples to me. There are entire classes of buildings in Los Angeles that we know have, like, a really good chance of collapsing in an earthquake. And we still have not fixed all of them. And there are some that we know that have, like, a pretty good chance or an okay chance that are some of the tallest in California, actually, that we know could collapse in a big enough earthquake. And we have no programs in place to do anything about those. And that's because the political will and the social, the social will is not there yet. But let me tell you, like after one of those, if they do, we can't guarantee anything. But if one of those collapses after a major quake or is even like in downtown L.A. leaning over and perched on another building and looks like it's going to come down, anything like that, then you'll have that will. And then people will go, oh, maybe we should spend some billions of dollars to, to fix these things because they are a major risk. But we also had someone bring up a really good point during the podcast, which is like, okay, a couple thousand people die uh, if one of these comes down. The odds of it coming down are very low. Um, Is that worth the money that we have to invest? And that's a question that all of society needs to ask for every, preparation for any major disaster, but especially here in Southern California.
0: Right. Well, I mean, once again, I think a great case study is Kobe. All right, Kobe didn't yeah. was not prepared. Uh, their emergency response system uh, at the time of the earthquake earthquake was crap, um, and they suffered horrible, horrible casualties, and incredible amounts of damage, damage that took years to build back out of. But now they really do have a very good retrofitting program. It's a little bit like locking the barn door after the cow gets out. But they got a great retrofitting program extending right down. Down to, And this is something I think California and maybe everybody should consider um, tax credits for retrofitting your house. In other words, uh, if you do the anti-earthquake retrofitting on your own dwelling place, uh, I think you can have a tax credit that's half to one quarter uh, of the cost uh, of that. But, you know, I mean, Jacob, it almost seems like you have to have the disaster before you get the consciousness raised.
1: Yeah, I can't remember. um do not remember who exactly said this but it was it, it was put in a very succinct way it was show me the bodies mm-hmm. you know like show me the bodies and then i'll show you the funds for going ahead and fixing them and you know people can there by the way there is a brace and bolt program in california for homes and there are some incentives for people to fix like larger buildings sometimes but um you know people can also say like hey dumb californians make this you know, this is coming, like, why aren't you doing everything you can to fix it? And I would say like, well, there's plenty of places where we know climate change is going to wipe out coastal communities. Like we, there are places that we know that storms are just going to get worse and are going to continue the areas that are going to flood. And like, maybe we shouldn't build in those areas. And that's stuff we're dealing with here too, by the way, uh, in California along our coast. Right. But again, it's a question of what is the political capital? What is the social capital? How much do you want to invest in something like that? And we are very short-sighted, and we are very, we are very myopic in, in what we decide to uh, dedicate our money to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say. I'm sitting in a microphone right now that a number of years ago I was sitting at, and the building began to shake. Uh, I was live on the air, and we were having an earthquake, uh, and I eventually kind of signed off because it was sort of hard to concentrate. Um, But I mean, I haven't changed one thing since then. I haven't done one thing differently. Uh, This building isn't any different than it was the day that that happened. I mean, I I think the other other bad thing that happens sometimes, and it might have just happened in California, is you have a really big earthquake, and there isn't that much damage. And it kind of contributes to that mentality that, oh, well, look, we just had seven point one big deal we didn't we don't have to do anything.
1: I will say that with this quake, you know i don't i I don't want to downplay it in that there are people that I believe lost their homes there are there were no deaths as far as I know, no fatalities associated with it um and there were minor injuries. We got away overall, like we got off on this one mm-hmm. now, and that's really great. I will say what I've been seeing because people reach out to me, you know, when earthquakes happen or when we talk about earthquakes is a lot of people saying like, okay, this was enough to like spur me to action. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to my editor about this. Like we talked about this a lot around the podcast. He said one of the best things to get people ready will really be like a 7.0 that doesn't really magically doesn't really do any sort of absolutely humongous damage. And that's kind of what we've got. And For those people that are suffering through it right now that I'm going to drive, I'm driving up there right now to go interview some folks, you know, that's not how they feel. But for the tens of millions of people that live in Southern California, like I got to tell you, like a lot of them are reflecting on their own situation right now and they will be preparing as a result. And the people up north in Ridgecrest, um, up north from L.A., will also be preparing more, I'm going to assume, as a result.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Jacob Margolis, we're going to let you go and let you continue with your journey. uh, Science reporter for KPCC in Southern California. And what we didn't do here, because I think, you know, you really need to kind of focus a little bit on this, really listen carefully or maybe also do some reading is we didn't really go through the list of stuff that you need to do to get prepared for this. But if you listen to his podcast, The Big One, Jacob Margolis is the big one. uh, You will learn uh, all kinds of things uh, like that. And you'd also be well advised to do a little bit of reading about this. Not that I've done any of that, but I mean, <laughs> but eventually we'll we'll figure out how to be prepared. Anyway, thanks for doing this with us, Jacob.
1: No problem. Uh, it applies to everyone, by the way. Everyone should get ready for the disaster in their
0: area. Right, exactly. There'll be something, and we've talked about this a lot in the past. There's always going to be something. All right, so let's. Uh, we're going to switch gears. We're not going to make you any more. Cheerful about uh, the state of humankind, probably, but uh, we're going to talk about something different anyway. And then at the end, we'll talk about the women's soccer team, and you'll feel really good. All right, but we have somewhere else to go before that. Let's take a break. We'll come back. All right. Uh, we're back. Um, and so, well, yeah, the occasion for thinking about this particular topic, uh, I think, was the leaking of diplomatic cables uh, from uh, the uh, ambassador uh, from uh, from England, the British ambassador, Sim, uh, Sir Kim Derrick uh, to the U.S. Uh, he was giving his frank assessment uh, of Donald Trump. It's probably pretty similar to your frank assessment of Donald Trump, uh, but uh, you know it's sort of Michael Kinsley's definition of a gaffe: it's when a public figure accidentally speaks the truth. Uh, so that's what we've got in front of us right now. But it kind of you know made us also think a little bit more about once again how the international diplomatic community perceives what's happening here in America. So joining us now to talk about that is Heather Hurlbert, director uh, for New Models of Public Change, New America, uh, columnist for New York Magazine. She also hosts the Dresbert podcast. And if you go on uh, Apple um, podcast, you'll see comments complaining that they don't do it enough, uh, which is always a good thing. I mean, scarcity can be a good thing. Uh, Heather wrote about the lingering uh, impact of President Trump's foreign policy for New York Magazine. Thanks for joining us.
2: Great to be with you.
0: So I, I almost don't know where to begin, but maybe the place to begin is here if you go back to 2015 and 2016 one of the things that Donald Trump ran on was the concept that he was essentially going to overturn a tremendous amount of settled diplomacy some of it having to do with people with nations he, re- he regarded as free riders people who were people and countries that were just getting too much from the United States and not giving enough back and sometimes it wasn't countries it was entire international entities uh, that he, he put in that category and the other category were Nations he just didn't trust, uh, a leader among them being Iran. So he he ran on disruption. He ran on, vi- on sort of a violation of settled diplomacy, settled treaties, settled agreements. I suppose it should be no surprise that basically he's run around doing that kind of thing just as he said he would.
2: Yeah, I think a really good way to understand Trump and, and what he tries to do here is that the International system is built on the idea that predictability is good, Mm. that countries will behave in certain ways, that diplomats will behave in certain ways, and that certain things which are true will not be said in public. And Trump's whole – the way he's gotten everything he's achieved in his life – is that it is a value to be unpredictable and that he uses over and over again to his advantage, both personalization, that is, there's no system, there's no structure, there's only him. I alone can decide. I alone can keep you safe. And he's very, very good at strategically saying the quiet part loud. So, you know everything and the interesting thing i think that we've seen in the the first two years of the ad- administration is that the existing international order w- was in no way prepared to deal with him so you get um and and look diplomats send home blunt cables with nasty negative assessments of people and countries all the time there's there's nothing even remotely unusual about the cables that were leaked over the weekend, the the assessments of of UK officials about about um, the Trump administration. What is unusual is that um, there's not much consequence that that the 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 UK, Europe, every Japan, Australia, Brazil, every country that has looked at Trump and said, "What the heck is going on here?" That, no, that there hasn't the, the system turns out not to be able to rise up and stop him, right? So two years ago, you had Americans going to our NATO allies and saying, oh, Trump's going to be president, but this is going to be fine because NATO will make the U.S. live up to its commitments. Well, it turns out that's actually not the case. And Trump, I think, intuited that and has very cleverly, you know, not just rocked the system, but driven a bulldozer through various parts of it.
0: Right. It's also the case with these multilateral treaties, multilateral agreements, um, that if the United States won't... Participate. They don't work anymore. So the Iran deal has a a number of signatories to it. But if um, the United States isn't participating in the Iran deal, if it withdraws from the Iran deal, it doesn't work anymore. Uh, The Paris Climate Accords uh, have lots and lots and lots of countries lined up uh, getting ready to do something about climate change. But climate change, climate change is a global problem. If you have uh, a large operator like the United States, if it's not in there, there's a question about whether you can, in a meaningful way, address climate change. And so to have somebody like Trump who goes his own way on this stuff and who does these things that are kind of unprecedented, I mean, the problem do- doesn't just stay here on our shores, right?
2: Well, to be clear, the the foundational principle of American diplomacy since World War II was that it would be useful for the United States to bind itself in small ways Um, in order to get other countries to bind themselves in the same ways. And again, let's be frank, the U.S. has committed to lots of international agreements and not upheld them perfectly ourselves over the intervening decades. And so in point of fact, countries around the rest of the world that don't have the world's largest military, that don't have either the world's largest or second largest economy, that aren't home to many of the world's largest corporations, that don't speak the language that is lingua franca around the whole world, they would love to have only the small amount of restrictions on their freedom of action that the U.S. does and receive in return the enormously large benefits that the U.S. got. But Trump saw, and he was absolutely right about this, that we had gotten both lazy in explaining to Americans how the system was benefiting them, and that in really important ways, large swaths of Americans had been passed by, that folks who were getting told the same thing about international cooperation that they were told in the 50s and 60s, but their living standards stopped improving after the 50s and 60s. People were angry. People wanted something different. You add that to a kind of cultural dislocation and feeling of cultural difference and change, um, which comes out as as racism in its nastier forms, which is also, of course, international, foreigners, et cetera. And so Trump, this international, um, his way of behaving is really core to who he is. It's not a a side project. And this this idea that, um, you know, everybody from France to Japan to Germany— are somehow mistreating us, cheating us, stealing things from us that are rightfully ours. That's been a core of his view of the world for 40 years. Um, I have a colleague who actually went back and read um, everything Trump had written going back to the 70s, and he's enormously consistent, as odd a thing as as we're so used to thinking of him as inconsistent, but his his core, this aspect of his core appeal is, is enormously consistent over the decades. And I think, you know, something that's worth pointing out in that, um, those leaked assessments from the British embassy is after the ambassador kind of says a bunch of snarky, nasty things about Trump, he says, but we shouldn't write him off because although his administration is dysfunctional, although it's a full of not very competent people, he nonetheless might walk through it all and triumph like Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of a Terminator movie. Um, <laughs> So, you know, foreigners see Trump not just as, you know, the sort of bumbling buffoon that he can appear to be on a bad day, but as someone who has really effectively grabbed all the levers of American power and is turning them to, to his own ends. And I think we we here don't always recognize the extent to which he's perceived as fully controlling all of the things that make the United States so formidable in the in the global system.
0: Right. I'm reminded of a a presidential debate uh, where uh, Howard Dean and Joe Lieberman got into an argument about Middle East policy, and Joe Lieberman said— this is obviously when that candidate field was very full, but he said that would overturn 50 years of American uh, foreign policy in the Middle East. To which I thought, good, because American foreign policy in the Middle East isn't working. Uh, and and I think there's a lot of people who feel that in, in a much more broad-based way. And so you know, I'm sure these other countries, when they see in lieu of some you know Richard Holbrook type highly professionalized, well-trained diplomat, you know Jared Kushner or Ivanka or nobody uh, in the case of a lot of positions that haven't ever been filled, uh, when they look at all that and they think, well, you know where where are the pros who actually know how to do this stuff and who understand how diplomacy works and know the protocols and conventions? Um, there are some Americans kind of to the point of that that re- remark at the end of the cables, saying, well, good you know, good. It's good that we're not doing it that way anymore. We never liked doing it that way anyway. Let them deal with, you know, people they're not used to dealing with. I I don't know, maybe you can react to that.
2: Well, it's great that you... Mentioned Holbrook, actually, because um, Holbrook, who started his career as a young man in Vietnam, um, most fa- rose through the ranks very quickly at the State Department, most famously negotiated the agreement that put uh, Bosnia back together after it split during the Yugoslav civil wars in the 90s, ended his career trying to salvage the Obama administration's Afghanistan policy and, and died tragically in his 60s of a, of a heart condition. Um so Holbrook, on the one hand, um, is revered by by many people in the foreign policy establishment. I worked for the guy. He was a certified, you know, once-in-a-generation genius. But he was also a bully. And he was a bully to Americans, and he was a bully to other, other people around the world and to other governments, and he had absolutely no problem bullying foreign leaders. Um, he was a bully when he was at the United Nations in New York, and so one of the ways— when the world looks at Trump and looks at Jared Kushner, people don't necessarily see, oh, this is a terrible aberration that has never happened before in the history of America. They say, okay, so before you sent us a bully who was very smart and highly competent, and now you're sending us bullies who aren't necessarily as highly competent. And so the danger that I think Um, we really have to watch as we move into the next phase of, of American political leadership, whatever that looks like, is should we have a president in 2021 who's not Donald Trump, Um, It's not going to be as simple as people remember from Barack Obama in 2009 going around the world and saying hi, I'm Barack Obama and, and America's back, quote unquote, that you're really seeing a lot more right now countries and political establishments in other societies saying, you know, this stuff that we're seeing with Trump, this is something fundamentally true about America that is bigger than Trump, and we're going to start adapting to it. And so the temptation, particularly for those of us who are old enough to remember um, Lieberman Dean or other sort of moments in in the '90s in the in America's past, to think that this we're going to return to the position of total global preeminence that we had in the '90s, we're not. We're going to have to invent a new way of of being in the world, in a new way of being both very powerful, but not able to make any single thing we want go our way. And that's going to be, that's going to be a big shift, both for people who like the kind of shaking up Trump is administering and for people who don't like it.
0: The, uh, you know, Heather Hurlburt, when you say that, um, I want to just press you on one part of that, which is the Obama part. I mean, I think it could be argued that Every administration kind of reshapes the foreign policy Overton window uh, in a way that makes it very difficult to pull it back into its old shape. So, yes, you have Obama touring the world saying the United States is back, but you have Obama unable to close Guantanamo. You have uh, Obama presiding over a series of extrajudicial executions, drone strikes, stuff like that, things that a constitutional scholar (laughs) probably wouldn't have expected to find himself doing, but ways in which the apparatus and the thinking he inherited from Cheney and Bush wasn't as easy to cast aside as maybe even he thought it would be. Uh, React to that.
2: That is definitely true. One of the main reasons for that, by the way, is that we fund the military and quote-unquote hard security side of our international affairs apparatus so much better than we fund the diplomacy, economic, foreign aid um, soft power, smart power, cultural power side. So when a president comes into office, she or he, the tools that she or he has are overwhelmingly military tools, even if she or he starts out thinking to yourself, well, there's a lot of tasks that frankly, number one, our soldiers aren't trained for, and number two, would be better if if done by civilians, but then they find out, oh, you don't actually have the tools for that. And our whole um, media environment, the way we cover and think about international affairs is if it bleeds, it leads. So people don't see, people don't hear about, you don't get any positive bump from doing um, soft power behind the scene, unless it's kind of confrontational in the way that this president, has has done it so it's enormously difficult for a president to reorient the way america is is in the world and it's going to be again i think even more difficult for a a next administration because everywhere from, you know, having um, substantially dismantled the economic infrastructure to dismantling the Iran deal to giving away a lot of concessions to the North Koreans without actually getting anything in return to halfway sponsoring a coup in Venezuela and then having it not come to anything, you're just, um, you're going to have a long to-do list with a greatly attenuated toolbox.
0: As Pat Polson would say, picky, picky, picky. Uh, yeah,
2: sorry. This is not at all more cheerful than natural disasters, uh, no, is no. it? I, I...
0: I know, but in, in each case, we apparently need blood and a body count in order to take the threat seriously. Heather Herbert, uh, great to talk to you, director of New Models of Public Change in New America, columnist for New York Magazine, where she wrote about this, also hosts the Dresbert Podcast. Thanks for being with us today.
2: Thanks so much for having
0: me. And we are going to end on a cheerier note. We're going to talk about soccer, which is football, but that's a whole other thing. We're going to talk about the women's team uh, and the amazing thing that they did in the World Cup this year. And uh, Megan Rapinoe's smile is going to enter your brain and you will just feel better, right? It's like a drug almost.
3: They' making fun of them. He knows 11 words, although he can't spell even one of them. An overly flamboyant, orange, autocratic, scuzzy man who's undermining everything Obama did because he can. He's undermining everything Obama did because he can. He's undermining everything Obama did
0: because he can. All right, we are back, and let me say a thank you to senior producer uh, Betsy Kaplan for organizing today's show. Kyle Wolf's on the board. Uh, our wonderful intern Carolyn is on the phones. Uh, we are to oh tomorrow. So tomorrow. We are going to share with you uh, a show that we actually recorded a couple of weeks ago down at the Connecticut River Museum in Essex. And we wanted to do a show about shipwrecks, uh, and we decided we would— Understand shipwrecks pretty broadly too. they would even include? They would range from your conventional shipwrecks, uh, and which need to be curated at the bottom of the ocean in some cases, uh, to pirate treasure, which we probably have a, a bit of, uh, courtesy of Captain Kidd around here somewhere. But also to our prehistoric uh, uh, times and, and dugout canoes from uh, Connecticut's prehistory, which are sometimes found at the bottom of large lakes and things like that. So anyway, it was a pretty interesting conversation, and. I I hope you will uh, be part of that. Uh, But yes, we promise to make you happy. And we almost never do make you happy. But we're going to make you uh, happy right now. It's impossible not to be happy. well, it probably is possible, actually. Uh, Josh Levine is joining us as Slate's national editor. Uh, he hosts uh, Slate's terrific sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. He's the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now, but which is a very interesting book uh, in which he interrogates and investigates the story of the kind of original welfare queen, uh, so, or so named anyway. Uh, but he's also been covering and writing about uh, the incredible victories of the U.S. women's national team. That's what we're here to talk about. That's what's going to make you happy. Uh, So, Josh, welcome back to our show.
3: Apologies to all the Dutch people who are listening, who are not going to be happy about this conversation.
0: Right. Although, you know, I mean, they weren't too shabby either. I mean, obviously, that wasn't the outcome that they looked for. But uh, considering what a powerhouse this U.S. team had been heading in there, uh, you know, for the Dutch team to go an entire half uh, without surrendering a goal
3: (laughs) at all, that was, you know, sort of a moral victory or half a moral victory. Great point. We're all happy today. Congratulations to the Dutch for only losing uh, two to nil to the greatest team in the in the world.
0: So you know, I mean, here in provincial Connecticut, I would say until quite recently, Megan Rapino was probably thought of as Sue Bird's girlfriend or something. She plays some game like uh-huh. soccer or something like that. So I would I would argue today that Megan Rapino is now the most famous American soccer player of either gender, right? I mean, in in history, I don't think we've ever had the kind of celebrity that she seems to be about to become, the kind of uh, celebrity who will, I think, pretty easily transcend her sport so that people who don't really care very much about soccer, they're going to know who she is.
3: Yeah, I think that's a totally fair point. And the way in which she um, excelled in this tournament, both on and off the field, um, you know, scoring six goals, winning Um, the trophy for the best player in the tournament leading the United States to second consecutive world cup victory while being totally unabashed about who she is going, uh, you know, tit for tat with Donald Trump talking about how you can't win the world cup without gays on your team because it's science. Like (laughs) she is um, a totally transfixing character and somebody who is just like kind of a model of an athlete that we haven't really seen before. And not just because, um, she's a soccer player, but just because like how she's openly queer and how she's so kind of defiant, um, you know, towards the, the president, it's all, it's, it's a, uh, an unusual and amazing package.
0: Right. I, I would, you know, one, this may be a very stretchy comparison that would get me kicked off, uh, hang up and listen, but, you know, in some ways I, I was I was trying to think of a, an analog and I started thinking about Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali in the sense that not everybody liked Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali and he certainly you know, rode uh, through some some, uh, I mean, you know, obviously uh, defying the draft was uh, the ultimate one, but, but he also he had this electric quality to him. Um, he was a superb athlete, you know, amazing to watch as a boxer, but he was also really interesting to watch when he wasn't boxing. Um, my mother, a steadfast Goldwater Republican, worshipped him like a demigod. Uh, and, and I think there's a way in which Rap- you can sort of see Rapino kind of doing that. She's a superb soccer player, but she's also really interesting to watch. Even she was running around the field
3: striking these now kind of iconic poses that she likes to do. Yeah, I mean, I've heard uh, you're not the first person to make that comparison, and we haven't even talked about how she was the first white pro athlete really to follow Colin Kaepernick's lead and kneel during the national anthem. She did that several years ago. And it wasn't just her, but she really embraced during this World Cup what are traditionally categorized as quote-unquote distractions. She was talking about the fight for equal pay Um, she was going after fifa the sports governing body at a press conference right before the world cup final when i think most athletes would say i just want to talk about the next game i'm trying to focus on my next opponent she dispensed with all that and she was just out there talking about the stuff she cared about and that she believed in in defiance of, of typical sports convention
0: Right there, you know that there was that whole question of if you have a whole bunch of extracurricular distractions, how is that going to affect you as an athlete? Uh, one person who would know the answer pretty well uh, to this question, as regards Megan Rapinoe, is Sue Bird, and Sue Bird said it's impossible to rattle her. You can't do it. You know, I mean, if you think fighting with the president and and campaigning for equal pay and doing all this other stuff is going to affect her on the soccer field, you don't understand how she's wired, and that really does seem. To to be the case. I mean, whatever's going on in Megan Rapinoe's mind when she's playing soccer, she's certainly not worried about
3: something that is maybe going to come up in a couple of hours. Yeah. And I think that you could say the same thing about her teammates. I mean, this is a team that just by virtue of the structure of their sport, the pressure that's on them is immense. This is a quadrennial event. The Olympics are also a big deal but the world cup is really the thing in soccer and to go in it's the defending champions talking about um you know that ali krieger one of uh the players on the team saying that you know the uh americans uh are, are just the clear favorite and better than than uh than everybody else in the world and just to back that up to seem like they were unburdened actually, despite having all this pressure and to do what they did is, I don't know if it's unprecedented in American sports, but it is, uh, they're they're not an enormous amount of precedent for what this team has accomplished.
0: No. And, and I, you know, in watching them yesterday, one thought that I had is that, you know, in terms of, uh, Uh, Campaigning for equal pay and equal recognition and equal status. This is a great place to be the leading edge of that because partly because one thing about women's soccer is women's soccer and men's soccer are essentially identical experiences in a way that you might not be able to say about other team sports. I mean, in the first 21 years of the WNBA, there were 14 dunks. You know, So if you think dunking a basketball is a big part of the excitement of basketball, there's a way in which women's basketball can't give you that uh, as easily. But there's nothing that happens on a men's soccer field that doesn't happen on a women's soccer field. So since they're <laughs> incredibly good— at what they did do I mean they make a tremendous case for that equality of pay equality
3: of recognition right I think so um, there was a quote that Rapino had um, she said this to the Washington Post's Liz Clark and I quoted it in a piece that I wrote this weekend Rapino talked about what she called the team's double earn I have to do everything I have to do on the field then I have to do everything else to prove to you that that's enough I have to somehow justify myself or convince you that what I just did was amazing and I already just did it. That quote is so amazing to me and really gets at the nub of what we ask of these women. Not only do we ask them to perform, to be world-class on the field, we demand that they um, you know, speak up for themselves in a way that we don't even expect that male athletes do off the field. I think that gap is closing, as you alluded to. You can't look at the audiences, at the jersey sales, at everything that's surrounded this tournament and deny the fact that these women um, are a phenomenon, that they uh, deserve everything that they want and more. And so hopefully what we're asking of them off the field in terms of demanding what what they deserve, I I hope that um, that ask will be a little bit smaller than perhaps it was in years past although what you
0: have as a paradox is this incredibly high functioning group of athletes who are just amazing uh, together and separately they're incredible and they they do they just just function at a at a level close to 100% and their interactions around issues of pay and recognition are going to be with one of the most dysfunctional sports organizations uh, imaginable and and certainly my understanding of FIFA and of international soccer leadership is highly Really jaundiced as a result of being a regular listener to hang up and listen, where uh, you guys have done nothing to instill in me respect uh, for, for these soccer bureaucrats. But I mean, there's a way in which the people they're going to have to deal with, they make Roger Goodell look
3: like Ralph Nader. Yeah, I mean, Johnny Infantino, the head of FIFA, has talked a really big game about how they're going to invest more. But if it's FIFA doing the investing, you have to wonder whether those investments are going to end up in the right hands, whether they're going to go, I guess in soccer, they're going to end up on the right feet. Um, you know, whether they're going to go to women in developing countries, whether they're going to go to federations that need, um, funds to really develop and invest in, in the women's game, you know, Jessica Luther, who we've had on uh, hang up and listen before, who's a great commentator on sports. Wrote a piece in HuffPost arguing that women should break women's soccer should break away from FIFA, which is a very powerful and persuasive argument. In terms of the practicality, um, I don't know if it's achievable, but it seems like something to strive for because FIFA has definitely not done right by the women's game. And I don't know if I was, you know, the the women of of US soccer, if I would believe just because they're saying they're going to do right by the game now, that they're going to follow through on that.
0: You know, uh, there's an odd, another odd paradox here, which is that these women see themselves as resistors of Donald Trump uh, and Donald Trump uh, ism, uh, especially Rapinoe. Uh, but uh, I think in some quarters of the international soccer community, they have the same kind of swagger that bothers people. Uh, Certain people uh, about Trump. I mean, there's a weird way in which when you hear some of the "well, we don't like them that much" uh, stuff coming out of the the world of international soccer, uh, they may have been conflated with one of their
3: worst enemies. I don't know if I would go that far. I mean, I think there's some substance uh, to to go with the sizzle of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. There you go. Um, So that would be a, a a pretty notable. Contrast, um, there is this perception abroad that there is an American style of celebration in sports. Whether that's you know celebrating the 12th goal against Thailand or sipping tea, like Alex Morgan did mm-hmm. against England, I think they maybe should uh, you know look in the mirror a little bit and see how some players in uh, the major European leagues celebrate when they. Score goals, as Alex Morgan pointed out, there is some uh, grabbing of particular areas that mm-hmm. men engage in. That's perhaps not, uh, you know, it's it's just like you don't know the the water that you're swimming in. It's like maybe if you stop and and think and look about uh, how m- men celebrate and how that's not even commented on, then maybe you would uh, look and talk about these women differently.
0: Right. It's a great point, Josh. And it's why at Public Radio, we made Kai Ristall stop doing that. Um, (laughs) uh, All right. So Josh Levine, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Now, hang up and listen. is going to come out uh, later today, we hope. Uh, And he's the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Let me quickly end with a very, very quick story. After 1999, I was completely entranced by uh, Mia Hamm's incredible cutback move. And in 2000, I was playing soccer with my son and a bunch of kids, 12, 13-year-olds, and I yelled, Mia Ham! And I did her fabulous cutback move and I tore my quadriceps tendon in half. So don't, you can't, you're not, you're not Megan Rapino. Don't try to be Megan Rapino. Let Megan Rapino be Megan Rapino. You be you.